What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're talking life hacks, health fads, and hopefully some useful tips to lead a healthier life too, with two speakers who have been at the forefront of covering and critiquing the global industry that now purports to be worth over a trillion dollars, wellness. Oliver Berkman is a journalist and author whose most recent book is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management and Mortals. Sarah Wilson is a journalist and broadcaster and a familiar face from shows such as MasterChef Australia and a regular columnist for the Australian Sun-Herald. Her books include I Quit Sugar and the recent publication This One Wild and Precious Life, an investigation into what drives our desire for spirituality. If you want to hear an extended version of this discussion, head over to intelligencesquared.com membership or hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. But now let's join Sarah Wilson and Oliver Berkman with more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event, The Skeptic's Guide to Self-Help. And my conversational sparring partner this evening is Oliver Berkman. Oliver wrote the anti-self-help self-help column. This column will change your life. Some of you may recall it for The Guardian for 10 years. During this time, he investigated pretty much every productivity hack, mindfulness trick, happiness boost we've ever been fed. And wonderfully, to my relief at least, he concluded almost none of them work. He's published three books, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, Help, how to become slightly happier and get a bit more done. And most recently, he published the hugely popular 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Um, and this book has actually been on the New York Times bestseller list for over 10 weeks. And I think the rights, international rights, are with uh, 20 different territories. So uh, I'm sure m- many of you have read the book by now, and uh, he'll be feeding some of the content from that into this conversation. Oliver, welcome. It's great to join you here once again. We've we've interacted a couple of times over the yeah. years. Yeah, in in this space, in this wellness self-help kind of space. And I might kick off by um, getting you to explain how you wound up in the self-help realm. I think it was around about the same time that I did. We were living parallel lives on the opposite side of the world. Let's get to your story first, how you wound up writing your column and what was the interest in this topic at the time? Yeah, well, I'm really happy to be here having this conversation and thanks everyone who's uh, who's joining us. Um, I mean, the sort of surface level story, uh, the professional job level story of how I came to be sort of writing that that column, uh, which I did for quite a lot more than 10 years, I think I, I actually realise now it's, it's uh, terrifying. Anyway, um, was just that I was... 
I was reading all these books myself and my then editor at the Guardian Weekend magazine uh, cannily realized that she could get some copy out of me uh, about it, given that I was already clearly uh, to be seen round the office reading books on time management and and productivity. Not so much at that point, maybe spirituality and what gets called wellness today, but that came came later. So already there's this kind of slight problem in my interest, which is that I sort of began that column being relatively sarcastic and maybe um, more than skeptical, maybe almost cynical about a lot of what I was writing about. Um, and yet, clearly, I'd been very interested in it, like interested enough to, to read it. And I think that that goes to the heart of my sort of engagement with it, which has always had that sort of double edge to it. And in many ways, the the, the journey of writing that column, in many ways, was just a kind of process of getting slightly less cynical, maybe even less skeptical. Um, I thought at first the fun thing would be sort of poking fun at all the terrible self-help, and there's plenty of it. But it, actually, the really fun thing is suggesting to a typical Guardian reader that there might be something useful and practical or mind-expanding or peace of mind-inducing about what you might find uh, shelved under under self-help in the bookstore. So in many ways, that was what I did. At the same time, of course, you know, you get to test out a hundred different productivity systems and systems of, you know, designed to make you have happier and more pleasant days. And there's something very beneficial about testing out so many because you, you, you get to the bottom of the barrel, right? I mean, you get to the point where Oh, well, if I've done this, if I tried a hundred of these and none of them have worked, maybe that tells me something interesting about the nature of the the journey that I'm on rather than just that, uh, you know, I haven't found the mm. right one yet. Somebody with a more, um, you know, a more useful job to society than 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 me might have only have time to try out three or four. And therefore you might think that the real one was just around the corner, but I can tell you that it isn't. Um, yes. And so that was sort of an interesting place to get to. And then I think 4,000 Weeks really is the book I wanted to write sort of after that journey and and trying to say something concrete about kind of building a meaningful life in the absence of these kind of easy solutions. I don't know. That's yeah. my thought. How about you? Mm. Yeah, well, I think I think you've mentioned that you started out in about 2006. At that time, I was the editor of Cosmo. So I was editing a Bible of self-help stuff and a holy, selling a whole heap of stuff to young women that they really didn't need. Um, that was my introduction, but I got very unwell and I did what I'm sure many of the listeners would have done is take off into the forest and live in an army shed on my own um, in an effort to get better. And the wellness sphere was starting to emerge. So I had this wonderful idea as a journalist like yourself of pitching a column where I wrote about different ways to get well in order to heal myself. Um, it was sort of a, it was the smartest career move I've ever made, to be honest. Um, now, this was in about 2009, 2010 at this stage, and I went on a similar journey. I remember reading some of your columns. We were writing about some of the similar trends and themes and hacks and advice and, you know, interviewing similar people. But eventually um, I stumbled across – well, I was out of, a, out of a topic for one particular week and I figured I'd give quitting sugar a go. And um, – I researched it for a number of weeks. I gave it a go, tested it on myself, and it had profound effects. So I started, Twitter had just been invented. Um, 
And I started tweeting about it. I started blogging about it. I'd written a column about it and it got lots and lots of interest. And as I was doing this, the science was emerging. I started attending conferences. There was also Goop, you know, Goop had sort of established around about this time. Um, anyway, the column was called This Week I dot, dot, dot. And, you know, I would meditate with the Dalai Lama or whatever it would be. Um, this Week I Quit Sugar. And so that became the I Quit Sugar movement. It was an e-book and then it became a print book. And it just kept going and going and and going. But what was interesting, Oliver, is that I witnessed the way that this self-help wellness movement grew in tandem with um, social media. You know, Twitter was invented and then, of course, there was Instagram, Facebook, the whole thing uh, quite some time later. And that brought, you know, a commerciality to it all. Um, it also brought a whole heap of wellness warriors, many of whom were followers of mine, uh, you know, in the early years, these were women who were a lot younger than me, decided that that's, that was a career path for them. And you know, these are some of the people that ended up in a lot of trouble. Documentaries have been made about them. In, in several cases, two women died from uh, the, their own advice, which was hmm. highly medically irresponsible. Um, yeah, so my scepticism probably grew as I witnessed what was happening to this space and also how much of the world was um, handing over agency to these so-called experts that had these platforms on social media. So in many ways I created a bit of a beast and I also was part of it in real time. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting time and it's also interesting to exist in it now, a bit like yourself. I've, I've written books more recently that try to bring it all together because, of course, I think we do need wisdom and we do need guidance, um, but it needs to be quite tailored. But look, in terms of your scepticism, Oliver, um, I'd really love you to sort of outline what what kind of triggered your scepticism. You did say that some of it did work and some. I know that you're a fan of the Pomodoro technique, as am I, um, for, for getting writing done. But, yeah, what was your scepticism? What was your deep-rooted concern? Well, it's interesting. I feel like I, I mean, I will answer that question, but maybe in a roundabout way because you're really bringing my attention to a slight difference in maybe the domains that we've been focusing on because one of the things that I thought was so great about what happened in the years after I began that column, certainly not as a result of me writing the column, but just in the changes in the culture, was this kind of democratization of um, advice when it came to things like how to construct a meaningful life, how to think about handling overwhelm, how to think about organizing your time and using your time. Um, there was a sort of a, there has been a kind of a return to a kind of amateur involvement in the very best sense that in many ways sort of reflects to some extent how philosophy was conducted in the ancient world and things like that. That's a good um, point. Uh, mm. I have, you know, of course there were a million, you know, medium posts around sort of 2010 or 2012 of, of um, just sort of random entrepreneurs claiming that the way they happened to run their morning routines uh, was the right way for everybody. And it was sometimes a bit silly, but but there was inspiration there and their ideas weren't worse than than other people's. And I was always pretty skeptical of the idea that um, very sort of narrowly conceived social psychology experiments uh, were, the, were the main way to prove how people actually related best to their time and to happiness. And I would, I would often use those kinds of studies in my column as a jumping off point and then just completely abandon the question of whether the study was any good. So in a way, although I should probably have 
written about this more. I did feel slightly vindicated when it turned out that like half of those social psychology studies were in fact rubbish and had failed to to replicate. But but you're talking about the application of this amateur spirit. Maybe it's just a question of a different domain. Maybe you just can't do that with nutrition and uh, physical fitness. Maybe it's just fundamentally uh, different in in certain ways because you, because of, of course what you're bringing up uh, speaks to the whole kind of decline of trust in experts, and it's all obviously that's become part of the the sort of wellness to conspiracy theory pipeline is a is a thing now um and so actually the thing that i originally rather liked about what was happening to uh self-help in a broad sense around that time i can see very easily how it'd be a very bad thing if it turned into sort of making claims about uh diet you know forms of dietary advice that were just that were just not not real um in order to give you some sort of concrete thing about what I'm actually skeptical about, I mean, there's one thing which I think we can talk about uh, is the sort of political side of this, the idea that that self-help as an idea remains very sort of individualistic. It has this implication that, uh, you know, uh, you can positive think your way out of the situation you're in, you probably negative thought your way into it, and therefore um, broader societal systemic things don't need to be addressed. Um, that's a that's a viewpoint that has been sort of challenged in the last sort of three or four years much more strongly than, than ever before. And I think it has always been a real a real issue uh, in, in self-help going back a long way, this notion that you're responsible for everything that happens to you in, in the sense of blame. I think there is some sense in which it might make sense to talk about being responsible, but but not um, mm. but not 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 the cause. You know, this idea that if you're poor, it must be your fault. Absolutely absurd and very sort of it's a very American ideological idea. So there's that. The other part of it, though, that I've become more sensitized to recently and was probably more of a, you know, victim of myself. I don't think I ever started becoming a sort of hyper individualistic libertarian person politically speaking as a result of um of self-help but the other part of it is that a lot of it is actually gets used by individual people as a kind of avoidance so that the advice that we go out and seek is not the advice that we need to hear um the the changes that we uh need to make in our lives and that you will eventually, if you sort of embark on a lifelong quest of trying to figure these things out and reading lots of older books and spiritual books and going to therapy and all the rest of it, you may hopefully happen upon. It's often not the stuff that you're just going to get if you're marketed at directly um, by the most popular self-help authors. So the classic sort of example of this would be somebody who is in the market for business books, telling them how to cram more and more tasks into their day when actually, you know, their problem is that they're a workaholic and they need to look at what it is that they're avoiding emotionally by investing the whole of their uh, energy and attention mm. into their into their work. It's just one example among many. I, I came to realize that actually pretty much it's almost a rule of this field that um, that the advice that you really like and get excited about and want to implement immediately is is probably just enabling something negative in you and the advice that strikes you as confronting and annoying and makes you feel 
like it would be really awkward and tedious to have to go think about it anymore is very possibly the advice that you need. So I'm actually skeptical just on that solo level, as it were, that individual yeah. level about how it's how the standard marketing of right because what you because if all you're doing is trying to sell somebody something, um, then you, you're just going to do whatever it is that they think they need in the most immediate sense, and that might not be that might well not be the case. I think um, I think that's probably where we intersect quite heavily. Um, I feel that the self-help wellness realm um, has been co-opted by the neoliberal imperative. And what we're really seeing is sort of almost a reversal of what philosophical wisdoms and spiritual guidance has always been about. So we are inherently quite individualistic and selfish. It's part of a survival mechanism. Um, however, you know, we don't have fangs uh, to defend ourselves. We're not particularly fast runners. Uh, we don't have a sting in our tail. What we've always had is this ability to communicate and form community and tribes, and it's through that that we've been able to defend ourselves and rise to the top of the food chain, et cetera, et cetera. But what spirituality, what religions have done, what moral leaders, what philosophers have done, what they've done is they have ensured that that individualism doesn't run too rampant and we swing the pendulum back towards community because we need that nice sweet spot to be able to survive and flourish as humans. And that has always served, you know, a very important purpose and it's worked particularly well. You know, in the 1970s and 1980s, um, the neoliberal system, uh, you know, sort of what David Brooks refers to as uh, got rid of these sort of moral guardrails. And he's referring to things like community groups, even, uh, you know, church, uh, we're talking the scout movement, um, trade unions, whatever it might be, these groups that served that purpose were essentially removed from our culture. Um, and I sort of, I write about it in my book, um, as you might recall, I refer to them as, you know, we got rid of the moral umpires of the footy field of life. And so we're now running around playing a game with no rules and no umpires, which is really not a hell of a lot of fun. And how that manifests, I think, in the self-help realm, and it speaks to what you were referring to, is that we cherry pick the information that's nice and kind of cosy. So mm -hmm. um, we go through the various Buddhist traditions, whatever it might be, um, the Stoic tradition, and we pull out the bits that are nice. And I call it spiritualism light, you know, the diet version of, of this. And, um, and it was, you know, spiritualism light, self-help light, diet, the diet version. And what that looks like is we do the yoga classes, we do the sound baths, we do the bits of advice that reinforce the things that we are already doing and we leave out the stuff that the spiritualists said was fundamentally important and that was sacrifice and sitting in discomfort to build a resilience to get us through potential hard times down the track. That's what these traditions were about and We've cherry-picked the bejesus out of these things and it's been awfully pleasant but it has left us feeling fairly unnourished but also has led to, as you alluded to earlier, things like these information silos, um, you know, this correlation with conspiracy theories, the wellness mm -hmm. realm and, um, 
you know, very much crosses over with uh, people who got caught up in COVID conspiracy theories, but also more contemporary um, conspiracy theories. And you can see how it can happen. It's this idea of the sovereign being as most, you know, as, as all important. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of the the extension of all this. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche predicted all of this many, many years ago when industrialization, you know, first hit Europe. Um, he sort of predicted this. So that's kind of my beef with it, um, as well as this idea of uh, this these self-help movements over the last 10, 20 years have, have been about removing us from discomfort, cocooning us from discomfort. And what's really interesting is that technological advancements over the last 30 to 40 years have 70, 90% of them, I think I've got that right, have been about removing discomfort. So we don't even have to sit in the uncertainty of wondering when our pizza is going to arrive because there's an orb on the app that tells us exactly where it is in the neighborhood. Um, we don't have to wonder whether, you know, what the capital of Afghanistan might be, whatever it is, because we can go and Google it. We don't have to wait for anything. We don't have to sit in uncertainty, um, in doubt, in, in an unknownness. And, you know, I often say this, we have cocooned ourselves from everything except for real life. And so it actually mm. goes against what self-help is meant to be about. It's actually leaving us incredibly vulnerable. Yeah, I think all that's a really interesting way of putting it. I guess where it connects with what I've written about, certainly in the most recent, um, in my most recent book, is that uh, we're sort of very, um, sort of a good rule of thumb for understanding where we go wrong when it comes to finding happiness and community and spending our lives doing meaningful, productive things is that we sort of, we, we really uh, hate to be brought into encounters with our limitations, with our finiteness, right? So I, yes. the, the, very often that is to do with, with comfort and wanting to avoid discomfort. It, it, it can sometimes be, um, more to do with, uh, it's yeah it's a kind of it's a kind of uh, a quest for a kind of invulnerability so that i'm just the reason i'm pausing before i just completely endorse the idea that we're that that when self-help goes wrong it leads us just towards happy peaceful comforting things is that there is also and i know you want to talk about this there is also this kind of strand somewhat more marketed at men for obvious reasons very much working on the sort of rediscovery and repackaging of of stoic philosophy um where actually it's all about being quite um bold and fighty and and sort of kicking life in the ass and you know whatever i don't know but you know we're punching life in the face um and 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 it's all about sort of uh, bringing some sort of warlike uh, uh, status to, to achievement and personal development. And what's so interesting to me about that, although I think there is some merit in it and some merit in the Stoic tradition, is that actually that is also the comfortable option in a specific way for the people to whom it's marketed at. And, you know, I, I speak from some sort of personal identification with that, I think, right? This idea that you might be able to use stoic thinking or any other form of uh um sort of modification of your habits or your thinking to not feel emotional vulnerability to to be sort of so uh strong in the world 
that you wouldn't have to worry about the fact that you mm. you wouldn't have to worry about you wouldn't have to feel anxiety you wouldn't have to worry about where things are what's going to happen next or whether you have have what it takes to do the things that you think you need to do so there's a kind of a there's a version of this that is much less about sound baths and um child's pose and much more about uh kind of uh you know fighting to win the game of of life and actually mm. it ends up being the same thing which is uh and, it, and it's bad versions it ends up being the same thing which is this sort of horror of acknowledging that we're finite finite in terms of how much time we have which is the big focus of four thousand weeks but also finite in terms of how uh, much control we have over how life unfolds how much we can do alone uh without doing it in in community so um yeah, yeah i mean but in a way just sorry oh just super quickly i mean in a way mm. i just feel like this is it just mirrors everything it just self-help just mirrors society right we there we generally would prefer not to uh confront scary things and uh mm. occasionally we'll realize that actually that's what we need to do. Yeah, the Stobro movement, as I've referred to it, and I think maybe some others have, have as well, um, emerged more recently. Broicism, so, that's what I have. Broicism, that's it. Um, you know, I think it's emerged more recently and I think it's, uh, you know, it's all the ice bath stuff and, and it really is, um, for the way I see it, is a response to, again, the uncertainty, the doubt, the discomfort that the world is presenting. Um, and I want to move on to where we're at now um, off the back of that because I think it's a very male or masculine interpretation of uh, trying to regain control and cherry-picking the stuff that reinforces the messaging that feels safe. And for, mm-hmm. for men who are facing a really rough time at the moment um, with where their gender stereotypes are sitting, um, stoicism seems to provide a nice framework. It's a very watertight framework um, and when particularly when you cherry pick the bits out that suit your agenda. And this has been a criticism um, of a lot of Stoic professors when they witness, you know, some of these Stobros out there, um, you know, that they, they haven't embraced a, a really central tenet of, of Stoicism and that is this idea of vulnerability. Um, and we can see why a lot of men today would want to conveniently shut that piece of the picture out. But I'll just um, I'll just remind everybody listening um, in the audience to keep asking questions. Um, and just to remind you, you can ask a question by clicking on the Ask Question button, which is under the video screen. You can see it pretty clearly there. Put your name in there if you'd like to. You don't have to. And then press send and we'll get to those at the end. Okay, so let's move on, Oliver, to where we are at now. I think the world is in desperate need of guidance. Um, we're in a time of incredible flux and in such times throughout history, we've generally needed some great uprising of philosophical thought. It might be a religious movement. It might be, um, it might be a, a philosophical movement. But the, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the neoliberal imperative has meant that a lot of the, the, those moral guardrails have been removed. We just don't have them in place. There is not a healthy respect for philosophical discussion. I mean, it is happening, and I take your point, that the self-help space is probably the only space that brings this to the mainstream. Um, it does do it in, in, you know, bits and pieces in a very diet version. But um, in terms of institutions that are able to steer a society through difficult times, 
it's really hard to point to where they are right now. And we need them more than ever as the climate crisis gets worse, as we see, you know, the AI threat, we see nuclear threat dialing up um, and, you know, bifurcation, fragmentation, polarisation, the whole thing. And I'm wondering, is this why you decided to write 4,000 Weeks? Do you feel that the world needs a simple piece of guidance? Um, <laughs> and then for those who haven't read it, um, could you just give a bit of a, a, an elevator pitch description of the book? Sure. Uh, let me do that bit first before denying that I wrote it uh, <laughs> okay. because the world needed... To solve to, the world's to, problems. To, yeah, right. The world needed <laughs> him, I wisdom. That is not how it works for me. And I think there's an interesting... Uh, topic there actually about books and writing probably um uh yeah so the this is basically a little bit uh prefaced uh, i sort of got at this in my previous uh contribution but uh yeah it's it's a it's about this the the, the notion that we have a very finite amount of time four thousand weeks is very roughly and rounded down to get a good round number the amount of average lifespan in the developed world um we also have very little control over how that life unfolds. And I think that most of the ways that we go wrong in managing our relationship with time, making the most of our time, both in sort of personal and professional sense and as citizens of the world, comes from trying not to confront those truths. And um, and so actually, I make the case that it's incredibly liberating to realise that there will always be too much to do, that there will be more genuinely good causes than anyone can be expected to care about. Um, that you will never feel like you're ready to launch the next phase of your life, whatever it might be. And so actually, once you sort of give up on hoping to achieve that kind of mastery or control over time, you're actually freed up to um, actually do stuff and make a difference in your life, other people's lives in the world, um, because you're no longer seeking essentially to become a god with respect to your time. You can actually be more wholeheartedly human. Um I don't know about you, and I'll be fascinated in your answer to this question, but I do not write books because uh, I think I've figured the world out and other people need to uh, need to hear it. And it's going to sound like false modesty or something, but um, I, I write books as part of a kind of therapeutic process for myself that has the form of sort of writing the advice that I need to hear. So not only... I'm trying to write a book that I think should exist, uh, which is a pretty common thing that you hear people say, right? They, they looked for a book and they couldn't find it, so they wrote it themselves. But also, and I think this is probably pretty common, although not always acknowledged, also, it's the advice I could do with following, right? It's like, um, hmm. it, it, it's a question of what I am struggling with and what people I arrogantly think broadly enough like me are struggling with and trying to work out through the process of writing the book, um, uh, you know, what the right direction is in which to move on all that stuff. So it's kind of awkward because sometimes people read my books and then get in touch with me and you can tell from how they're emailing that they think that, um, that I've, that I now live, uh, a life perfectly in tune with the sort of vision of how to live that that is in the book and like I never actually make that claim because it's totally not true and um it's like it wouldn't be a topic of interest to me unless it was something that I found quite quite difficult and challenging so the book is very much like a partner in that um 
process. And uh, whenever I sort of get blocked and can't write anymore, I wander around smiting my forehead for a long time. And then I realize every time it takes, I have to remember it again, it always takes weeks seemingly, but that actually the way to get on track again is to is to ask what it is at this very moment that I'm sort of struggling with myself and to, and that's something that gives the book um, uh, life, I, I hope, and seems to have given the book life for enough uh, other people. So it's, it, that's a really, that that's how it works for me. The other thing that I find more and more, and I don't know if this is a bit defeatist maybe, but it does seem to be the, um, the, 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 the thing that means the most to people when they respond well to the book or to other things that I write, it's not that I offer them some great solution that they hadn't thought of before. It is that sense of a share of the fact that we're all in the same boat and that behind our facades, we're experiencing a lot of the same things. Um, quite often, I'm talking about all the nice feedback, which is kind of I don't mean to brag, but it's like it's a big important part of it for me is, is is getting this kind of resonance with people. And one of the things that people say a lot is like, this is what I've always thought, or you've put into words something that I knew but had not put into words. And, you know, you might think that was a bit of a, a sort of um, double-edged compliment because it's sort of like, well, I already knew this. What are you telling me? But I think it's actually the, the mm. it, it, that's the moment of connection because actually yeah. what there you can't learn something new about the meaning of life from some guy writing a book. What you can do is have ideas that were just below the surface brought into the sur to the surface and feel that kind of, oh, someone else understands because actually it's just lots of us. So I'm just trying to get more honest, I guess, as I as I write these uh, books. The book writing is the process of living in a new way or trying to uh, live into it. What tends to happen with me is I, I'm really good on the um, intellectual insights. I figure things out on an intellectual level really quickly. Uh, I come up with a sort of high concept for a book or something like that pretty easily. And then it takes forever to kind of follow through the actual embodied real uh, um, consequences of that sort of insight. Um, and so that is what the book writing is. It's just the same thing. Hmm. I would say pretty much the same thing. And look, we've got two minutes, so I'm going to answer the last question so that that person doesn't feel uh, left behind. Do each of you have one top tip for being just a bit happier? And that's from Jasper. Thank you, Jasper. Uh, yeah, I would say keep the camera rolling. I, I very much operate to that. Um, I also switch. I have this other little mantra that I that I work to, and that is that often when I'm anxious, and it's no big secret, I have bipolar, and I also have obsessive compulsive disorder. So perfectionism is something I'm very familiar with. But um, when I'm feeling anxious, and it can get debilitating at time, when I can, I try to say to myself, you know what, this is just me being excited. Um, excitement and anxiety trigger um, responses in, the, in a very similar part of the brain and it's a very similar response and our brains, if we reframe it, can actually start to respond to things differently with the language that we use. It works for me um, and so whenever I'm, I'm having a bit of a tough time, I do reframe things as this is exciting. Um, I've also become a yes person. This sounds so Pollyanna-ish and cliched but... Um, I have an autoimmune disease, which renders me absolutely exhausted at times and depressed. 
um, and anxious. And um, I can be very, very tired and it'd be very easy to say no to things. Um, I try to work to a default of yes, where the invite comes from somebody who genuinely wants me to be there. Um, So that would be it. And also walking in nature. It just works. Like I say, just start walking and it does its magic. I skip through the forest. I am. I had to imagine how many people have seen the crazy lady dancing in the forest. I'll put music on and I get to a spot and I dance. And um, it's a very, very happy, happy experience. As I say, just, just start walking, just start walking in the park, wherever it might be, and it will do its work for you. You don't have to think about it. Okay, we're finished right on time. Um, Oliver, my massive thanks to you um, and to our audience for your questions and for taking part this yeah, evening. Thanks, um, and to, of course, Intelligence Squared for hope, uh, for hosting this podcast. Very much appreciate it. And I've enjoyed it. And uh, Oliver, I'm sure we'll cross paths again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for uh, for being part of it. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you'd like to hear about what's coming up at Intelligence Squared before anyone else, do sign up to our newsletter to find out about events and podcasts with some of the world's greatest minds. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.